Psalm 16 is where we're headed. I have a, a habit I wanted to share with you. It's a habit of um, preaching really good sermons several years ago and then ruining them. And you, you, you may be wondering, what do you mean you ruined the, them? You preached them several years ago. Yes, here's how I ruined them. I will tell you, I get an opportunity to preach the Word of God, and I'm like, you know what? Uh, maybe we need to just get in the Word and find something completely brand new, fresh bread, right? Or maybe, or maybe, you've already hoed this row of corn, and you got something good, and these, people, these particular people haven't heard it. So here's how I ruin old, really good sermons. Here's how I do it. I reread them several years later. You might catch on what I'm saying here in just a little bit. I reread them, and I think to myself... Whew, uh, that, that, was, that was suboptimal. Um, I think to myself, sometimes, I think, well, that was borderline heretical. Uh, and so uh, it becomes, it, it, it's ironically, it actually becomes more work to re-preach a sermon than it does just to make a new one, you know? And uh, so that's an experience that I've had, and it's one that I will torture you with tonight. Uh, it can be discouraging. This, this can be very discouraging. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like reading old di- journals or diaries. Are any, any journal keepers here? We had some journal keepers? Diary? I don't know if, I, I used to think diary was the girl way and journal was the boy way. I, I don't know if there's a distinction in the terms, but um, how many of you used to be journalers, right? And you're not anymore. Is there anything more, maybe I'm just more self-conscious than you are, but is there anything more embarrassing than reading old journal entries Old diary entries, you know, you're saying things like, it was the bomb, or whatever your, uh, your particular dated colloquialism is, or your slang, or your freehand, or whatever it may be. And um, it can be a little discouraging, like, man, I was that much of a dope? That's amazing. And it can be a little bit discouraging to look back on uh, things that you've preached or taught, or things that you've said or thought in the past. But I, I think maybe I'm growing up just a little bit, because... Um, I actually, I actually get encouraged by the bad old sermons now. And the reason for that is, um, because I, I still do it, and you know. Uh, no, but the reason for that is, I think, I'm reminded of God's patience with me. Uh, I'm reminded of something else as well, and that is that it wasn't my awesome, it would never have been my awesome sermon or my talent or my intellect that ever would have... Uh, yielded something eternal in the life and heart of a believer. It's God's word. It's God's word. And uh, so as I look back, I almost see these, uh, these sermons from the past that are just so bad. And I, I think, man, wasn't that nice of God to, just, to not strike me dead on the, on the platform, first of all, what a, what a gracious Lord we serve, but also that God could use, that God could use what I had at that time. That God could take my, my best efforts and he could take his word and he could, just like, just like he did the miracle of tongues in the ears of the hearers and not the mouths of the speakers in the book of Acts. Everyone heard in their own language, just as he did that, that he can take the word of God as it's preached, however ham-fistedly, and he can make it minister something in your heart and in your life. And I thank God for that. Uh, that being said, we'll see, we'll see how this one goes. We won't know the true verdict for a few years. And uh, so stick around. I'll repreach it in a few years on a random Wednesday night and see if you guys can catch it, all right? So we're in Psalm 16. All that being said, it's my prayer that God would bless the preaching of his word tonight. Let's read uh, verse 1 through, I think we'll go through 
uh, verse 8. All right, can you read with me, please? Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage." I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you even more specifically and precisely for your words. I'm thankful that we have a book that does not uh, point us in the general direction of the light. I'm thankful that we have a book that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I'm thankful that we have this book here that is a, an accurate record and an accurate depiction and description of the author who wrote it. I pray, Lord, that we would get to know you more tonight through your word, and I pray that you would administer in the hearer's ears what it is they need to hear from the scripture tonight. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, do you think, uh, as I do, that the words of God are beautiful? You think they're beautiful. You know, I don't have a real beautiful voice, especially not a beautiful speaking voice. Uh, you know, when you hear recordings of your own voice, it's a little discomforting. You know what, you know what I'm saying? It's like, who is that? Ugh. People had to listen to him for an hour and 25 minutes. No, they didn't have to listen that long, but it, was, it probably felt that long. But the words of God are beautiful. Here we have, this is Hebrew poetry translated into English, and yet it preserves this beauty. I don't, I don't know exactly. It's almost like it was supernaturally done, uh, and I think we would agree that it was, uh, but it maintains its beauty. But the Bible's a lot more than just beautiful. It's true. It's true. And uh, it's something even more precise than that. It's exactly what God wants us to have and what God wants us to hear. Uh, never has God thought to himself after finishing a passage of scripture, he's never thought to himself, I just, you know, if I could do it again, I would have said this instead. God has never finished a conversation with one of the writers, one of the penmen of scripture, and he's never said, I just can't quite find the right way to put that so they'll understand it. He's never said that. He's given us exactly what he wants. And uh, I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing. Can we just walk through this passage one time? And I want to share some observations of the scripture, and then we'll jump into the actual meat of the message tonight. I wanted to share that uh, in verse 6 is kind of where we're going to be focusing eventually. We're going to be focusing there eventually. And I want to share with you that I've, I long misunderstood Psalm 16 in verse 6. Long misunderstood it. And I think there's several reasons for that. Uh, one of them is there's a song, and maybe you've heard it, I Have a Goodly Heritage. Are you familiar with that song? It's, I have a goodly heritage, I'm blessed with things you can't see. It's a wonderful song. Totally misses the mark biblically, unfortunately. And that's true of a lot of really good songs. Even songs that make you cry and make you feel good. It's so sad. But it's a good song, just not great, okay? But it sort of confused me. And so let's just walk through the scripture briefly and get sort of acclimated to what David is talking about here. David, if you look in verse 1, David began his prayer to God with a request and a promise. So what's the request that he makes? What is it? Look at verse 1, please. What is it? He says what to God? 
Preserve me. Preserve me? What does he mean? Does he, is he looking to be pickled? Uh, what exactly is David looking for here? What would you need to be preserved from? There's, there's danger that David encounters. There are pitfalls. There are snares. And he tells us about these. And there are caves that he has to flee into. And he's saying, preserve me, O God. But then he makes a promise. He states something that he wants to be true about himself. For in thee do I put my trust. Look at verse 2, please. David's psalm, this prayer, was a reminder to his own soul. And a repetition of something he had prayed before. O my soul, he's talking to himself, thou hast said. Do you ever feel frustrated with yourself when you come to the altar? Or maybe as you're sitting in the pew and the pastor's preaching, you say, I've gotten this thing right 55 times in the past. Honestly, I feel, I I honestly feel a little disingenuous going forward again. I feel a little disingenuous talking to God about it again. Perhaps you've struggled with a sin problem and you have tired of confessing it and repenting, changing your mind and your heart about that and trying to go the opposite direction. Can I tell you something? It is the devil that will convince you that you should not confess and repent and turn around again. And it's not the Lord. It's not the Lord. I understand it's discouraged, but I'm thankful for David's example here. Oh, my soul, thou hast said. What is he doing? He's reminding himself and he's committing again. Thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord. Thou art my Lord. You are the one who is in charge. My goodness extendeth not to thee. David recognized also in this verse, that his goodness was not a favor to the Lord. He wasn't going to put God in his debt because of his goodness. What was his service for? It tells us in the next verse that David devoted his gifts to the people whom God loved and who loved God. He delighted in service to God's children. Verse number four, David, who was no stranger to sorrow, knew something that the multiplying effect He knew of the multiplying effect of hastening after another God. Verse 4 says, if you'll look there, please, their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their sorrows shall be multiplied. Believer, do you ever struggle? Do you ever encounter sorrows in your life? Of course, right? Okay. Okay, so that would be a good place to say yes or not or like wink, maybe raise an eyebrow at me or something. You don't have to. It's fine. Um, Sure, we all face sorrow. So what's this guy talking about here? He's talking about multiplied sorrows. The days of man are few and full of trouble as the sparks fly upward, right? But David understood something else, another fact to keep in mind with that. Is that's that the way of trans- the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. And you understand that there is a season, there's a season where the way of the transgressor doesn't seem that hard. And David himself, and if you remember the psalm of Asaph, could be, those men could be distracted and they could see the wicked. They seem to be, they seem to be doing well. They seem to be succeeding. They seem to be um, becoming more wealthy and more powerful and more famous. And they seem, things seem to be going their way. And yet David, when he finds himself in what he identifies as a pleasant place... A place when he's reminded of who is the Lord. Who is his Lord? He's recognizing, sure, I have some sorrow, but there's, it's nothing compared to the multiplication of sorrows of those who seek after another God. David, rather than throw in with the followers of other gods, he abstains. Number, verse number five, David recognized Christ as his portion. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. 
David trusted in the Lord to keep his promises in that verse. He says, who, who did David say? If you look at verse 5, please. If you look at verse 5, who did David say would maintain his lot? He says thou, and who is thou referring to there, gang? The Lord. Okay, so the Lord's going to maintain his lot. What's that telling us? That's saying that David trusts God to fight on his behalf. David trusts God that those things that he holds to be so valuable and so precious, those things that he said have fallen unto him and it's made this a pleasant place, that in order to preserve that and keep it, it's going to be God's responsibility. That God is the one who's going to maintain his lot. There's some great truth we can glean from the spirit and the life and the words of David here. Really God's words. In verse number 7, David received God's counsel allowed it to affect affect his conscience and bless God for it. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But look at verse 7, if you would, once again. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. Reins. This is R-E-I-N-S, right? What are are reins? My reins instruct me in the night. Just think of it. Think on it for a moment. Maybe you just, you already know. Like you've got it. Maybe you've got one of those defined Bibles. And uh, no, or maybe you've learned about this before. What, what are the reins? What are the reins? You have reins? Um, I've, never, I've never ridden a horse. I've been on a pony at a backyard birthday party once. Uh, I don't think they gave me, I, I did, well, I don't know why that's funny, but I mean, it was a five-year-old birthday party and they had a pony. It wasn't at my house, I'll tell you that. And... Um, you know, we would, we would actually throw parties at other people's parties to make it feel like we had a great party, you know. But, um, okay, but the, what are the reins? Almost every time we see reins in Scripture, we see it connected with the heart. The reins is talking, I mean, you can think of it, Job talks about them, about his reins and about his, about his bowels and gall and about, you know, it's, what is it? It's the gut. It's the instinct. It's like the natural reaction that you have to any given situation. That's the reins. And so God counsels David, and amazingly, he, what David says is the result of that is not just, so now when, when I'm filled with fear and anxiety, when I'm thinking the wrong way, God tells me this, and, and then I, I can say, oh no, God really says this. No, what he says is, you've counseled me, I've received it, and it has literally changed the way that I think and feel. Believers, that's where we want to be. We want to get to the point in our relationship with God where we are allowing him to change us to the point where our instincts change. Amen. Where our, re- that first reaction, that first, you know, maybe at one point in your Christian life you had to count to ten and to get over that thing, to get a handle on your temper. But with God's counsel, he can literally change that to where your instincts are right, going the right direction. That's an incredible thing if we'll heed the counsel of God's word. An incredible thing. All right, those are just some observations, and um, let's, we're going to jump into the meat of the message in a moment. I want to ask you to focus on this part, if you would, verse 6. What did David mean when he said, the lines are fallen unto me? They're fallen unto me in pleasant places. Fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. You know, there's a lot of um, legal, legal leaves in this passage. I don't know if you, you recognize that. Um, 
if you know, they say if you want, if you're having a hard time falling asleep, you know, read a legal document. Uh, when someone expresses a desire to join the church, one of the things they have to do here is uh, read through the Constitution, and they'll say, "Yes, I've read it, and I agree, and so forth." And whenever I hand it to someone, I say, "Hey, look, if you're having trouble sleeping, this is going to be just the. I mean, this is just the mix you need. This is the stuff." And uh, but you know, there's actually a lot of legalese here in this passage. A lot of property law terms and estate law terms. And uh, let's look at a couple of them here. One of them would be portion. Portion. We see portion used several times in scripture. We see a worthy portion, a double portion. What's a portion? A portion, generally speaking, is like a daily provision. Okay? So when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and the manna fell, they were supposed to go out and take one portion. And how long was that portion supposed to last? Do you recall? The portion was supposed to, were they supposed to keep it all week for a month? No. They would go out and they would take one portion. It would be for one day. Now, of course, the exception being before the Sabbath. So that, that's what a portion is. It's that amount that you receive on a regular ba- basis. It's an allotment, a ration, a fraction of something, if you will. But when David says, the lines are fallen unto me, we know that in Scripture... It's, it's uh, another exciting part of the Bible where they're, they're lining out, uh, where God meticulously lines out the boundaries and the barriers of the different tribes. Do you remember these, these places? Happens a couple times in Scripture. I am personally directionally challenged. Okay? Uh, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just a function of not being terribly intelligent. I, I really don't know why it is. Like, I don't know if it goes really well with some other part of my personality or my nature. Maybe I'm like mildly dyslexic or something, but like... Someone's like, oh, yes, yeah, so you're going to go on this road, and you're going to turn north. And I'm like, please, just stop. Just stop. We're going to have to get out a phone, and you're going to have to give me an address. Okay? That's what we're going to have to do. And if, and if they say, oh, there's no cell reception out there, say, I'm so sad I'm going to miss your party. It's really too bad. You say, you don't even want to come? No, no, here's the thing. If I start trying to get to it, I'll never get there. Um, so I'm very directionally challenged. And when I read those portions of Scripture where it's like, okay, and then from this valley eastward up into whatever, it's like I just get sort of lost in the sauce. And I can't remember where everything is, you know. And, uh, but God very meticulously, very carefully lays out the boundaries and barriers. Does he not? He takes it very seriously. But David says, yeah, these lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. They've just sort of fallen, you know, just sort of happenstance. And I want to see if we can look in Scripture to illustrate this idea. Would you please turn to the book of Numbers? Let's go to the book of Numbers together. Verse, uh, chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. I want to try to illustrate this from the scripture, and I hope it'll be a help. You understand that the children of Israel took these property laws and these lines very seriously. They took them very seriously. Um, if you remember some of the examples, even in Christ's ministry, didn't they come to him and they say, hey, well, this guy... He, he took this guy, he has, what, seven brothers or whatever, and he took a wife. And then before they could have kids, the brother died. So then she married his next brother. And then, you know, they just sort of kept going on down the line and all this. That was all very important to them because it, it, it affected inheritances and who owned property. And there's all kinds of rules about you can't sell this or you can let it out at this, for this period of time. Or there's a year of jubilee and everything's got to come back. I mean, there are a lot of rules and laws about this. They took it very seriously. You know, uh, it's a very, some very important plots of dirt over there in the Middle East. 
Very important to God, very important to the, to the Jews. Um, but let's see maybe an example how we can understand how David could say these lines have fallen to him in pleasant places. Number 16, you know the beginning of the chapter. We're going to look at the last part in verse 41. But the beginning is when Korah and Dathan and Abiram, they come to Moses and they say, man, you take too much on yourself. You have set yourself up above the people. And who do you think you are, Jack? I mean, it's basically the conversation. And, and Moses says, look, I'll let God decide who should be in charge. Why don't you come tomorrow? Everyone who's on your side, they, they can burn some incense together. So sort of separate yourself from myself. And we'll see who God chooses. And on the morrow, when they come and they gather together, it's pretty obvious who God would like to be in charge because Dora, uh, Korah, Dothan, and Abiram, the earth opens up, swallows them, and shuts up again. So it's like, do you think God, do you think it's really clear who should be in charge now? I think, and I think it is. Amazingly though, uh, I think it's, I don't remember how many were in Korah and Dothan and Abiram. So I'll, I'll tell you what, let's just stop saying the names. The bad guys. How many were in their family? But then 250 other people are killed. They're killed. They were the ones burning incense, identifying with them. And you say, wow, great. End of story, right? Nope. So you have people complaining against the authority that God's installed, and they're killed. And then when those people are killed, then the rest of the people murmur and say, you've killed people. And they murmur against Moses. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 41. Verse 41. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, ye have killed the people of the Lord. God opened the earth and swallowed them. Okay, it's, it's, but it is kind of amazing. When you really get your heart set against someone, it really is amazing the kind of things that you will uh, attribute to them that were actually God's doing. That's a, a, just something to keep in mind. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron. There's, there's a word, it's, it's chutzpah, you know, chutzpah. I mean, can you imagine watching God open the earth, swallow people who were against the guy, and then the next day being like, hey, my turn. They're all gathered right in front of Moses and Aaron, like, you guys shouldn't be in charge. I, that is, I tell you what, their heart was definitely deceived, that's for sure. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered, this is verse 42 again, against Moses and Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it. God is there, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Now, who fell on their faces? Moses and Aaron. Uh, it's the same thing they did earlier in the passage. They knew it was the Lord's doing. They knew they had not installed themselves. If you recall, Moses actually almost begged God not to put him in charge. And God has placed him there, and Moses and Aaron, they fall on their faces. Verse 46, And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. What grace ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people and he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. 
Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. I'm going to ask you to envision with me. I thought about, I thought about, I need to do a visual aid. I've been in junior church lately, been in junior church, and so visual aids I think are very important. I think we need more of them. So let's, uh, let's not break anything, but I think, I think I can do this without breaking something. In Baptist churches, when the, when the pastor gets inspired for a visual aid for an illustration, um, what that usually turns into is either a hymn book or a microphone stand. Um, and so I'm going to go with, with the microphone. Okay? If, if you'll allow me. Thank you. Okay, I'm just getting it ready for those who can't see it. Nothing, nothing crazy going on. Okay, so, so Aaron, I don't, I don't know exactly how, what they uh, held, the, uh, the, what, what was the mode of transporting these sensors. Okay, so this would be some type of container in which you could burn something. And so this would be a better illustration if I had like a little something hanging from here. But let's just imagine we associate the rod with Aaron and maybe Aaron is holding this and he's about to run into the midst of the congregation. Based on the text here, it seems to me that people are just dropping dead. They're at least dropping sick. And then 14,000 of them die. When the people of Israel would gather before the congregation, the Bible gives very specific instructions for how they should be ordered. Brother Rains, you talked about this when you talked about a standard. They'd be gathered by families. And this family would stand here. And then this family would stand here. And so they sort of had their portions, their places, where they were supposed to be. When the, when the congregation would gather. Now, were they in these places? I don't know. You know, the other thing the Bible doesn't tell us and that I'm not sure about is I don't know exactly how it was that the plague spread. I don't know how it was. I know this. I know that there was, it was spreading in some way that you could see a clear line between the living and the dead. Because Aaron went and he stood between the living and the dead. Now, if we were to have a plague break out tonight... Like a coronavirus or something. No, if we were to have a plague break out tonight, where do you think it would start? Would it start? I mean, how, I mean, how do you think it would work? Do you think it would like work out like from the middle in like concentric circles? Maybe. So, it, so if it did, it probably start on this side. I was wondering if you all thought it would start in the back or the front. What do you think? I think it might start in the back. I don't know. I don't know. I, I look. I don't know. I don't. I, it could have. It could start. See, that's the thing. If the families are gathered, if the families are gathered where God told them to be, it would seem kind of, who really rough of God to like. Okay, everyone's complaining, but I'm just going to kill the two families who are at the front. I, I, but I don't know what he did. God is not bound to do what I think he should do. Um, but Aaron has this sensor, and he's going to run. He's going to run into this plague. That's some bravery. Thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for those who would go in the darkness and bring light. Uh, I think our missionaries and I think our pastors and I think you as believers in your community and your, at your workplace and your families, you, you represent Aaron, you are like Aaron in that regard. You go and you stand between the living and the dead and you bring the thing that can give healing. That's what we do and that's a blessing. But that's all, that's all side stuff. Let's get focused on the point. Let's just say it went from the front to the back in a congregation. People are falling down. Christine, could you exemplify falling down dead for us? Wow, I was just kidding. Thank you, Christine. That was very kind of you. you I wouldn't let that happen to you. I would get to you, and you'd be, you'd be on the living side. Okay. But people, let's, I mean, if you could just, just picture it. I don't know if they'd fall like dominoes. I, I don't know. But people are falling dead. 
and it's spreading throughout the congregation. And Aaron runs. And just imagine, just imagine if you would. Aaron's running as, I don't know if he's running as fast as he can, but he's running into the congregation. He's holding the censer. And he gets to a point, and there's people dying, there's people dying, and there's people dying, there's people dying. And he stands there. And you have the dead, and you have the living. Somewhere in that congregation, there was a point where someone would look up and say, I was going to be next. Somewhere in the congregation, you'd look and say, boy, I'm really glad I was five minutes late today. Or if it went from the back to the front, you say, I'm glad I was five minutes early today. I don't know. Why did, why did those people get to live? Why did those people get to live? What's so special about Amanda that Brother Gabe doesn't have? What is it? What is it about those people between the living and the dead? Doesn't the Bible say the whole congregation came before Moses and Aaron and murmured? whole congregation did. Everyone, in some sense, was guilty. 14,000 died, and a whole bunch didn't. What was the difference? Was the ones behind them, was the ones who were on the, the living side, were they, maybe they didn't complain as much. Or maybe they were just, uh, maybe they were just better. Maybe they hadn't complained as much in the past. No, I'm, I think we all know that the answer is a little bit dissatisfying. It's going to sort of leave us wanting a little more, but I think the truth is that's just sort of where the line fell. There was a line between the living and the dead. And I think the people on the living side would have to say along with David, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. When David says the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I've received something that I didn't earn. He's saying, I'm enjoying something that I didn't even have to work for. He's saying, I'm living in Beulah land, and I didn't even have to go through the wilderness. He's saying, someone else paid a price for me to have what I have. How could David say that he was dwelling in pleasant places? It's because he recognized he did not have anything to do with drawing the line. Some of us may be confused and deceived, and we are blessed beyond measure, and we think that we had something to do with that. Now, please don't misunderstand me. When I say that, I am not discounting you following the Bible and being blessed, right? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. So certainly there is blessing that comes with obedience. But the very idea that you, a sinner to get blessed for following the rules is kind of, I don't know, kind of presumptuous on its face, isn't it? I, let me, I'll say this. I think that it is. But the lines have, been, have fallen into us in such a pleasant place that we get blessed for doing what God said. We get blessed for doing things that are good for us. It's, it's absolutely incredible. We have not earned the good gifts that God has given That's what David means when he says the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. It's the grace and the mercy of God that he is acknowledging. I'm going to slow down for a moment. Dwell for just a moment 
on all that has fallen out in your life. Think of all the events, people, gifts, the blessings that you've received. Meditate on every good thing currently in your life. Can you connect all those good and perfect gifts to your own goodness? Or can you trace them rather up to the Father of Lights? Let's just take a few examples, if we may. Some folks among us may have chosen their children. There are some some in our church who have had the privilege and the joy of adopting. Uh, Most of us have not had that. We've had maybe our own children. Um, It was a good day when my wife and I went to the hospital and we said, hey, we're here to pick out a baby. We're here to pick out a baby. What kind of babies you got? And uh, they walked us back to the, the, baby, the baby room. They had all the babies on the shelves. And we're like, hey, that looks like a baby who I could convince people is my child. And it uh, looks like a healthy baby. I want that one. I want, that's the one that I want. And we took that baby that we chose. This is a dumb illustration, right? Because that's not how babies work. But the Bible says children are an heritage of the Lord. Has God blessed you with your children? Now, I was also thinking about this. I was thinking of... Um, I was thinking of when I chose my parents. I was thinking about that. And I don't know what I was thinking that day. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking that day. No, I was thinking about the fact that I never chose my parents. I was even thinking about those times as an idiot teenager that I thought to myself, I wish I could have chosen my parents because I would have picked different ones. Don't look at me like that. Do not look at me like that. I'm talking about, look, I was 35 and it was like, no, no, a teenager, rebellious, having a rough, going through a hard time. God chose my parents. You know, um, I've told the story before, but uh, I don't know if I'm the first one this happened for, but in my family, my mom has prayed for me every single day of my life except one. Since the moment she knew that I had been conceived every single day. I'm so glad I picked her. So glad. Man. No, I hit the lottery, guys. I hit the lottery. Actually, I did better than that. I did better than that. And I didn't pick it. And there's nothing that I did to put myself in a position to have the parents that I had. You know... I used, to, um, I used to have a drug problem. As the old joke goes, I was drugged to church. I was drugged to special services. I was drugged, you know, it's an old pulpit joke. Don't worry about it. And um, God has absolutely changed, shaped, and molded and bettered my life through the preaching of his word by the ministering of good godly men behind pulpits and good godly men and women in Sunday school classes and junior churches and VBSs, and teen camps. And I didn't pick any of them. The lines are just falling into me in pleasant places. They're falling into me in pleasant places. And I wonder if they've fallen in pleasant places in your life. I would guess that they have. You know, what's, I tell you what's wild is as you look back, you know, David later, he says in one of the Psalms, he said, goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. I tell you what's crazy. When, when you look back, even the things that other people would look at your life and say, oh, man, I bet that was really hard. I look back on those things like, I'm so glad God did that. 
even the things that look difficult. It was God drawing an incredible line in a pleasant place. And for me, it just fell. It just fell. Had nothing to do with it. Now that's what, that's what David's saying. But now I want to share with you, if I may, in these last few minutes, I want to share with you where I under, misunderstood this passage for so long. All right. Now, and here's the thing. I was thinking about this. This moment is not going to have a whole lot of impact unless you guys also have misunderstood it to some degree. So just feign excitement or like wonder, like, wow, I never saw that either. It would really help. I've been overwhelmed by the goodness of God when I consider there's nothing I have done nor could do to earn it. God's blessings are a kind of embarrassment of riches. We all rightly feel like God's pet, like Pastor Sal has always said, plucked from our darkness like Mephibosheth and brought to feast at the table of the king. But, and that's true. But you know, that's not what David's talking about. It's not what the psalmist is, the psalmist is describing as his goodly heritage. No, he told us the actually unbelievable and life-changing, perspective-changing truth in verse 5. Look at verse 5, if you would, please. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Did you, are you following what I'm saying here? Are you following what the scripture is saying here? We should thank God for the good things that he gives us. Amazing. Every good and perfect gift. Incredible. We should count our blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your many. When we should count our blessings, we should, we should give thanks. We should write out our thanks. We should remember it. We should declare it publicly for all the things that God has done, all the people he's put into our lives, all the victories that he's given us, all of the, the trials that he's brought us all the way through. We should do all of that. But that's actually not what David meant when he said the lines are falling on to be in pleasant places. What did he mean? The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. He got God. No, 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 no. He didn't get all the stuff that God gives. He got all that too. He got God. You say, I'm having a really hard time looking at my life as being something that's a pleasant place. Maybe you're going through a difficult time with your family, or maybe your health, or maybe your finances, or maybe just yourself. And I don't see it as a pleasant place. I'm not living in victory. Maybe what you're failing to recognize is you're looking for God's goodness and all, and some good things happening and some happenstance in your life. And you're maybe looking and saying, well, I haven't had that, you know, I haven't had that special gift in a long time. And what David is pointing us to, he's saying, no, what you're missing is that even if you don't have all the stuff, you have God. You don't just, and what he's saying is not just you have God and you can call on him. He's saying, no, he's literally there. He's, and no, actually he's saying something better than that. He's saying he's literally yours. Yours. The reason we don't feel that we're in pleasant places is because we have a really hard time believing <laughs> that that's true. 
Don't we? I, we I, 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 let me rephrase that. We must have a hard time understanding that. We must have a hard time believing that. How else could we view any place that we are in as anything other than a pleasant place if we were really cognizant and fully believing that we possessed God and that God possessed us? How could we see it as anything other than a pleasant place? How could we view our troubles when we're in them as anything other than great because the Bible says that the Lord is a very present help in trouble. So that's the incredible thing for the believer, for the one who has Jesus Christ living inside of him. He doesn't just get visitation rights to see Jesus Christ on the weekend. He doesn't just get a hall pass occasionally to go see Jesus Christ and have a nice day and get out of class every once in a while. No, Jesus Christ is with him all the time. That's amazing. Jesus Christ is with him all the time. Do you think if you believe that, it might change the way that you behave in some form or fashion? For some of us, you know, what we really need is not a kick in the pants. What we really need is a reminder, hey, I'm right here with you. Some of us might need a kick in the pants. If you recognize that God was with you when you were doing those things that you ought not, when you were thinking those things that you ought not, when you were saying those things that you ought not, do you think if we recognize that God was with us, it would change the way that we see the world? Certainly it would. The incredible thing is that in Christ, we're not just given water, we've been given the well. In Christ, we've not just shut off the spigot of God's wrath. We've been doused in his presence and in his goodness and in his very self. In closing, I just want to share, if you're in the habit of taking notes, I just have three points. Number one, recognize how to dwell in pleasant places. Number one, recognize Christ as your portion. Recognize Christ as your portion. I'm going to write a couple more points because we have enough time. I'm going to write a couple more points down here. There's a song that says, I found it all when I found the Lord. That song gets it right. Recognize Christ as your portion. Number two, daily drink from his cup. Daily drink from his cup. Would you look in Psalm 16 again? Verse 5, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. And then it gives another uh, denomination of something that you might receive and of my cup. And, and my cup. So what, what is he saying? He's, he's that big thing that I got. He's that foundation on which I can build a life. He is, he's, he's literally the ground I stand on. He is everywhere. And he is all I need, it's absolutely incredible. Like he is my, he's my sustenance and he's, he's my future and he's the thing that I want to give to my family and to other, and I, that I want to bless the world with. Like he's literally all around me and in me and part of me and like he's the portion of mine, of mine inheritance and my cup. And my cup. And that cup, I think we could think of it, if we look through scripture at the cup, it's that, it's that, it's that, that regular dose of what it is that you need. It's that, it's that regular dose. You come, when you, get, when you use a cup, you only get enough to last you for a little bit. You get enough to last you for a little bit. Drink of his cup. Now sometimes we think about Jesus Christ and we think about the cup and we can think of something quite harrowing, quite difficult, right? Remember Jesus Christ prayed, Father, let this cup pass from, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But do you understand? <laughs> because Christ drank that cup, we don't have to. 
Because Christ drank that cup, we don't have to. Because he drank that cup, we now get to drink at the table of the king. Because Christ drank that cup, we don't have to. Two, daily drink from his cup. And three, trust him to fight your battles. Trust him to fight your battles. Last thought here, verse 5. Thou maintainest my lot. Anybody have a lot in your neighborhood that needs to be better maintained? Perhaps it is yours. I don't know. I don't know. It's really interesting. Uh, Poorly maintained lots are always kind of annoying to me. I didn't understand it as a child when my dad would come in the house. I didn't quite understand what was going on. But then when I started taking care of my lawn and I started edging my sidewalks and curbs and... um, watering my own weeds, when I started doing that, it really started to annoy me how other lots weren't maintained. You know? It does every day. And I actually have considered buying blinders to wear while I drive, so I just can't see it anymore. But I think that would be dangerous. Um, Thou maintainest my lot. The children of Israel were in constant fights, constant fights with one another, about, hey, there was this landmark, and this guy came in, and he moved the landmark. He's trying to encroach on my land. This is mine. And there had to be an arbiter, someone who would, or an arbitrator, someone who would come out and say, okay, that's not where the landmark should be. you got to move it. There was someone who literally, whose job it was to help maintain the lots. Not mowing the grass, but make sure that they never lost anything that was theirs or never took anything that, wa- never took anything that wasn't theirs. And the children of Israel would take it very seriously if someone encroached upon their lot and tried to take what they thought was rightfully theirs. And the truth of the matter is, many of us, the reason we find ourselves frustrated and not feeling like we're in a pleasant place is because we feel like someone is encroaching on our stuff. The scary thing is sometimes we think it, we sort of get frustrated at God because he's encroaching on our stuff. We've actually, we've actually misplaced what our lot is, and we think our lot is the stuff. We think our lot is the good things, and the good salary, and the easy schedule, and the obedient children, and the, the, the happy life, and the white picket fence, and the friendships, and the popularity, and the whatever it may be. And we, we get a little bit confused on what the lot is that's supposed to be maintained. And so we see things encroaching on this lot, and we recognize we're on someone else's lawn on someone else's lawn. We get back to home and we recognize that everything God wants us to have, he can and will maintain for us. If we're convinced that what God is working in us, God is working in us, I don't think we'll buck and fight when God does it. When God trims back the hedgerow, when God has to remove some weeds, see, God is the one who maintains the lot. We think we have to protect it and we're not going to let anybody else into it. And we forget that God is the one who maintains the lot. Number three, trust him to fight your battles. Do you find yourself in a pleasant place today? Do you find yourself in a pleasant place? If not, if not, I think we need to go take a step backwards and recognize that Christ is our portion. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you for your word. Lord, your word sometimes bluntly but almost all the time, so precisely and so graciously and so kindly and so tenderly corrects my heart. It 
it gets in and it, it cuts out. And it, that, that, that word of God, that sharp, sharpening two-edged sword, it, it divides some things asunder. And I, it helps me to see. It, it's like that glass, that mirror. And I, I see in myself and in my life things that don't align with your word. And, and then within your word, I don't just get the rebuke. I also get the instruction and the exhortation. And I get a balm of healing for the wound that's just been created. Lord, your word is amazing. Because your word is a manifestation of you. And we thank you for it. I pray that you would change us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.